if you look at higher education, it is largely founded on the bachelor and master's degree. Mm -hmm. And the bachelor's and master's degree, the average age of a bachelor recipient is about 25 years old. The average recipient of a master's degree is about 29 years old. And I think that's where the problems start. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Well, it's New Year's Eve, a time when many of us live the cliche and take stock of what's going right and what's going wrong in our lives. I'm really not a fan of resolutions, but I do like the introspection that goes into them. The conversation you're about to hear is thus perfectly appropriate for the occasion. Scott Latham is a professor of management at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. He's a scholar of organizational decline and has recently focused his research on the future of work. So what is the future of work? Well, it's nothing new. In fact, Scott tells us that we're currently going through our fourth future of work. This one, however, is different in that technology and other forces are threatening to eliminate rather than create jobs. Sure, new jobs will be created, but we cannot predict what they will be. Scott's thinking on this is clarifying, horrifying, and inspiring all at the same time. He's certainly motivated me to take a hard look at the core product we offer here at the University of Montana. Does that product match the challenges before us? Well, I'll let you develop your own view of that. Anyway, let's get into it with Scott Latham right now. Okay, so we're here today with Professor Scott Latham. Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Justin. I'm thrilled to be here. So you are a close friend and collaborator of one of my favorite colleagues, Mike Braun, here at the College of Business. Uh, the two of you went to grad school together. Was that at Amherst? We did. We both got our doctors taught at UMass Amherst. And you are an expert in strategy, organizational decline, and now teach at UMass Lowell. I do. Uh, one of the sister campuses of the broader UMass system. You know, I grew up about f- six, seven miles from yeah. uh, the campus. Lowell is... <laughs> debatably the birth of the American Industrial Revolution. Absolutely. Rust Belt type city that um, has had a lot of ups and downs. I've seen them personally. I'm an alum here. Uh, these days we're on an upswing. It's a wonderful city uh, with so much to offer. And it's a, it's a really great university. And, you know, I love teaching here because when I look out at the classroom, I see students that look like me. You know, mm. the first-generation kids. Uh, college is a dramatic shift, uh, I think, for them and for their families. And so I feel a profound sense of obligation um, to do what I can and play a part in their development as individuals and professionals. Yeah, it's funny. On the surface level, you might not think that Lowell, Massachusetts and Missoula, Montana uh, share uh, many things in common, yet some of the dynamics you described there um, – yeah, I think we have a lot of similarities in, in the type of institutions we are and the missions we're trying to, or the customers we're trying to serve in many ways. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, I've been out to the campus and it's beautiful. And I can tell you that you have a river that pretty much runs through your campus and we do as well. And so there are a lot of similarities, I think, as far as mission, you know, you know how the central role we play in both the cities and in the larger region, I know geographically Massachusetts can't compare to Montana, 
but you know we're about 30 miles from Boston uh, northeast and we play a real central role in high-tech healthcare uh, medical devices uh, we just launched an advanced textile center that's looking at smart fabrics for example um, so yeah so no I think we're very similar in with regards to the role we play in our you know mutual states so our paths crossed. I mean, I sort of knew of you just by following Mike's research, but our paths sort of crossed more formally a few weeks back when you spoke to our advisory board here at the College of Business about uh, this concept of the future of work. And you have sort of pivoted your research uh, in recent years to, to really kind of dig into this. And it's a topic that um, has so many dimensions. Um, but I, I just sort of once, once sort of touching base with your work, it started really clarifying um, what's in front of us from a future work standpoint. And before we get into kind of how universities and maybe our two universities specifically can address some of this stuff, let's get into what is this concept of the future of work? It's not necessarily new, but how is it, how is it manifesting right now? Yeah. So for me, uh, let me just walk into for your listeners how I arrived here I came out of UMass Amherst in the early 90s and by luck just went into the software industry and the first job I had out of school was for a global positioning system software company GPS integrated software uh, largely for the Navy okay and uh, was that Raytheon uh, we worked with Raytheon Raytheon was a partner of ours and so we would scan charts, we developed the software, and then we would go on naval vessels and put the software on, you know, all types and all sizes of naval vessels all, you know, throughout the U.S., you know, up here in the Northeast, down in Norfolk, Virginia, down in Florida, or over on the West Coast. And back in the day, the early 90s, the things that we take for granted now on our phone, it was pretty revolutionary. Sure. Um, and then I think I was employee number four. We realized very quickly that that while that market was protected, it was small. You know, there's only so many naval vessels out there. Mm-hmm. And so then we went into the commercial uh, area of uh, the nautical market, looking at fishing vessels. Uh, and then we went into the recreational market, looking at larger vessels as well, you know, anywhere from about 30 to 40 feet. Sure. Because you you needed a computer on board to be able to do it. So that was an instance, I think, where technology and innovation had some disruption in the market. Worked there, you know, well into my late 20s and then left and went into the uh, ERP, Enterprise Resources Planning, companies like SAP, Oracle and the such, um, and saw how those IT systems, again, disrupted organizations and saw the dot-com boom and the bust. And for me, then going into my early 30s, in full disclosure, Justin, I'm a pretty open book. Michael, tell you that. I was burnt out, you know, like a yeah. lot of people, I think, in the software industry, you know, the, putting in 16-hour days, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. You know, probably well from my 20s into my early 30s, it's tiresome. And so... Left at that point, did my research on the dot-com bust, and it was that my firsthand experience and then getting into the research that led me to look at this whole notion of disruption and technology and innovation and the turn 
churn, excuse me, and the, and the idea of what they call creative destruction. Right. And we're, we're in an instance of it right now. And that's why looking at the future of work is kind of an extension of what I have seen personally and studied in my doctoral program. And now we're on the forefront of it. And for me, this future of work thing is amazing because there is a tremendous amount of hysteria around it. And while I get it, and we talked earlier about the pain that's going to be associated with it, it's not the first future of work right. uh, by any means. You could, any of your listeners or you or I, you could type in industry 4.0 and you would get research reports from PricewaterhouseCoopers, the Wall Street Journal, think tanks, you name it. And, you know, so we're at what they call, you know, the fourth iteration or the fourth industrial revolution, the first being, you know, industrial um, production and rail, the second being, you know, efficient mass production, the third being IT and telecommunications that we saw in, you know, the mid last century. And now with automation, AI, biotech, uh, bio wearables, this is the four, 4.0. And I think the central, central component is the whole idea of a job ledger. In each of the past three industrial revolutions, there's been an accounting of whether or not more jobs were destroyed or created. And by all accounts, more were created. Most economists, you know, point to the last three industrial revolutions and they think, you know what? Yes, it was pain, but there's been a plus for the economy as a whole and for customers and the value they derive and mm -hmm. the efficiencies and productivity. However, I think a lot of folks are wondering if that's going to hold for our industry 4.0 in this current instance of future of work. And the answer to that is, and I think everyone needs to know is no one knows. I mean, no one knows. Yeah. I have read I am as well read as anyone in, in the field right now. Um, I shared with you a graphic with regards to the U.S. predicted job losses over the next two to three decades. I have read every report, and they don't know. And so the models vary dramatically across industries. They vary across regions. They vary in their assumptions. They vary in their characterization of the standardization of the occupations being studied. And so that variance is evident. And, you know, you look at someone like a forester research, they think, you know, over the next couple decades, we're going to lose about 24 million jobs. Um, Oxford did a study about four years ago out of the UK, they th thought the number was closer to 75 million. I think these numbers are inflated and I give them largely to show the, the extent, that spectrum of job loss. But what I do say, and I teach a graduate class in this, you know, the worst case scenario is we're going to have this type of job loss and we're going to need to get people back into the workforce. The best case scenario is we're going to have a dramatic job creation and we're going to need to get people prepared to be in the workforce. So right, right. regardless of the best or worst case scenario, the disruption associated with this is going to be massive. And, you know, when you're laying that out there, kind of yeah. traditional economic thinking is as these lower skilled jobs are disrupted, the economy yeah. creates better jobs, higher paying, better, you know, more, more skill 
Yet, you know, uh, your article that that I read, my your your four ways jobs will respond to automation. Yeah, kind of lays out this this deeper way of thinking about it. Two dimensions, and then four types of disruptions. Can you walk us through that? Because you know, it's a simple model, but it, it sort of illuminated the notion that you know, really thinking about low skilled jobs as the ones being disrupted is kind of lazy thinking. Yeah. So this is. Um... I think a classic example of how bias affects us as individuals, because for me, and as I said earlier in the podcast, my father was a general contractor. He worked in the trades his whole life. Uh, And I did probably from the time I was 10 up through college, he would always take me out to job sites. And so the people I know well are carpenters, electricians, plumbers, um, framers, uh, cement form guys. And as I got deeper and deeper into this research, there was an inherent, I guess, slant against blue collar workers and the trades and people that didn't have college educations. And then as I got deeper into these studies, um, I just had to question these assumptions. And that's where the article Uh, that you're referring to that I published uh, with Dr. Beth Humbert here in the MIT Sloan Management Review, that's kind of where it was born out of, is questioning your point about that it was going to disproportionately affect low-skilled, I hate that term, blue-collar, uneducated college workers. And so we pulled together uh, a framework based on our review. We coded uh, dozens of professions, looked at the existing studies, and we came up with this matrix that, uh, you know, not to self-promote, Justin, MIT grabbed it, and last year we would, you know, uh, I think one of the top 10 cited articles in the magazine, and this is the MIT Slow Management Review, and it really got an enormous amount of coverage, Mm -hmm. uh, both in the academic and popular press. And so what it is very quickly is, Our general argument is that technology affects not only the skills of the worker inherent in those professions, but also the form in which they deliver the value associated. And for us, that was the central thing being missed, is that in the future of work, how is the notion of value that you create at an economic level, how is that being affected? And on the skill side of things, what you see is that the threat to skills largely derives from standardization. It goes back to the old Taylor school of thought from 130 years ago. And when you look at standardized skills, surprisingly what you come to find out is the folks that have the least to worry about are the folks in the blue collar trade type jobs with a high level of relational aspect to the job and the folks that have the most to worry about are ones that are accountants um, or pharmacists jobs that we've always thought as being safe are probably not safe Uh, and then it's further compounded by this whole notion of value form how do you deliver that value to your end consumer so, Scott, can I interject yeah. for a second? So yeah, with, sure. with pharmacists and accountants, for example, yeah. they yes. have a, a highly skilled 
task that they're doing, but they're doing it re- repeatedly and, and similarly Correct. over and over and over again. So those are the yep. sorts of tasks that AI can disrupt with automation, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And we're starting to see it. You know, I have two pharmacists in my family and, you know, we talk about, you know, what we do for work. And, you know, over the summer, I would talk about the whole notion that the pharmacy industry is in big trouble and yeah. more specifically pharmacists. And like anyone else, you know, they have a hard time seeing that given the the investment they've made in their own respective professions. But if you look at what a pharmacist does and you look at the costs of mistakes in that business, whether or not pharmacists want to be automated, uh, you know, and at the intersection of automation and AI, we're looking at what's being called smart automation. Mm-hmm. They will be. And because, you know, you look at CVS or Walgreens or Rite Aid or the mom and pop pharmacy on the store, you make one mistake. Once the customer has an adverse reaction, the insurance liability associated with that is in the tens of thousands, often hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so not only can an AI system or smart automation do the job quicker and more efficiently, it can do it with less errors. And so plan a better, better customer experience too. I mean, Amazon can fulfill a script to your doorstep or could in a future world with different policies perhaps, but that certainly beats the the customer experience of going to the pharmacist, nothing against the pharmacist themselves, but the experience is not a good one. It isn't. And then there's the other thing that you and I don't see as consumers. So there's two really standardized streams of tasks in pharmacy. There's the delivery of the medicine to Justin or Scott. And then there's the compliance aspect. Mm -hmm. And the compliance and tracking related to the data is already largely automated. And so that underlying task automation that when you see the pharmacists, you know, entering in information into the computer, that's already automated. And so now using smart automation, just pulling away the pharmacist, it's a no brainer. And again, over the next decade, you know, more personally, just in supporting that this, the framework certainly supports that, you know, UMass Lowell had looked at launching a pharmacy college and we had consultants come in here. We talked to them at length and, you know, they said the same thing. And as a result, we did not launch a pharmacy college a few years back because the jobs the job predictions largely relative to automation weren't there. Mm -hmm. And uh, that gets back to our discussion around mission. I mean, UMass Lowell has a mission to take first gen kids into lucrative career paths out of the door. And how can you as a college put a student into a career path knowing full well that it's going to be limited in its scope uh, or likely to be limited in its scope. Um, So, yeah, so the, you know, those are what we call uh, jobs that are, displaced, sure. um, where the skills and the value form are being impacted by the future of our technologies. Uh, we have disrupted jobs as well, um, where you see uh, an impact to the skill set. Um, a good example here is accountant. Mm-hmm. You know, if you went into an accountant and they said to you, hey, let me look at your books and it could be you know, this or that, yeah, right out of the gate, you should probably question whether or not that accountant um, was going to do right by you. Accounting by its definition is a standardized procedure. And if you look at some of the scandals, you know, Enron, for example, now going back almost two decades, these were instances where there was accountants playing in the gray area and there there just shouldn't be any gray area. So those skills 
are being threatened, but the form of value keeping the books is not. So accountants, you know, are again at danger largely because the skills are only being threatened, but the value form is not. Yeah, explain that. Uh, I interrupted you before you kind yeah. of got a chance to explain what value form is, the other dimension of your two-by-two two matrix here. Yeah, so the value form uh, is the, the manner in which the consumer basically um, derives value from what you do. So a photographer is one of our examples. The value form shift there is very easy to explain. It's a shift from print to digital photography for yourself and I, Justin. The value form is shifting from being in a classroom to being online. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an important distinction because I believe that if we look at the professor, the skills that we have are not being threatened. You know, I, you know, you and I have a level of expertise that at this current juncture, you can't get from AI or some other smart, you know, automated entity. Mm -hmm. However, the form in which you and I deliver it is being changed. Uh, it sounds so self-evident, but it gets back to our initial comments around the way people respond to change. I don't know what it's like out at Montana, but here at Lowell, you know, there are faculty that are so wedded to being the sage on the stage. They want to be up in front of a classroom staring at their students. And for some topics, yes, I think that form of value is still viable and it's still needed. But there are so many different, you know, disciplines where that isn't the case. And I think importantly, and we speak to this, the end consumer is expecting a different value form. You know, other instances of value form would be going to a movie theater versus Netflix, uh, digital versus print photography. We see these things around us, but how do they affect your occupation? And either people are, are uh, ignorance is bliss or they are actively resisting shifting their value form. Sure. Um, it, it's, it's, it's not something I think a lot of people can do easily. Um, you know, taxi driver, you know, people still need someone to get them from point A to B, but the form of value has shifted from a taxi to Uber, Lyft, you know, the gig economy. So that's what I mean when we say value form. And so to the degree the value form is threatened and the uh, skills are threatened, you find the trajectory of evolution that your occupation is going to take. Uh, and just as a quick plug, and it was in the uh, MIT Sloan Management Fall 2018 issues about a year ago. Yeah, we'll make the link available. Uh, it's yeah. you know, it's 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 one of those pieces of, of academic writing that is you know, you and your colleague are great writers, but it's it's just so digestible. And this framework helps you kind of get your head around it. Help me understand. Oh yeah, you know, a plumber and electrician. Those are two professions that yeah. are, in your words, durable um, yeah. and difficult to disrupt in many ways. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing I think is it's so what we're doing now with the framework is going out to these workforce associations and helping them look in a more um, theoretical fashion as how they're advising individuals. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. So let's, um, I mean, you brought up our profession, college yeah. professors. Let's pivot a little bit to, you know, we work at these institutions of higher learning, right? And that's, yeah. a, that's a fancy phrase. But this has important implications for how we conceptualize education. You know, yeah. Not only the value form, but like 
yeah, I guess value form is the right term for describing how we actually do education. Um, so how are you thinking about that? How are you thinking about yeah. higher education and how it needs to change to, uh, to address the future of work? Um, so this is something I just finished a piece that's in under revise and resubmit at an economic journal. As soon as it's available, I'll send it out to you. Yeah, and this was, do. it was at the interact intersection of the future of work and the future of higher education. And for me, I think a lot of folks in higher education are whistling past the graveyard. Right. They just are. And so if you look at higher education, it is largely founded on the bachelor and master's degree. Mm -hmm. And the bachelor's and master's degree, the average age of a bachelor recipient is about 25 years old. The average recipient of a master's degree is about 29 years old. Although I've seen some discrepancies in that, but regardless of discrepancies, it's late 20s, no older than about 32. And I think that's where the problems start. You know, the problem start there is because that means at 30, a lot of folks are done with what I would call their formal credentialing education. And that is not in line with the emerging workforce. You know, if you look at these millennials and the Gen Zs, and I can, you know, rattle off statistics, but they're ones that we see. The average Gen Z will have 10 jobs by the time they're 40. So that's 20 to 40. Um, 85% of the jobs, according to the Institute of the Future out in Palo Alto, a very respected think tank, have not yet been created. And then we bring in all of the disruption that we talked about earlier with the future of work. Um, I think we talked about it during the meeting. You have IBM who said we're going to have to retrain about 120 million people in AI because it'll either affect their job by displacing them or affect the nature of the job. These are people well out of college, well into their careers, well beyond 30 years old, needing a major reskilling, retraining event. Yes. And so... Getting a bachelor's at 25 and then your master's at 29 and then saying, you know, farewell, I'm off of right. my career, it isn't going to help those folks. And, you know, it, we're starting to come around to, you know, that notion, but you can appreciate this because you may be having the same conversations at Montana that I'm having at Lowell and across the UMass system. Whenever you bring up the fact that you know, we need to change our credentialing models to potentially incorporate more modular degrees that may build on a skill basis or bring in certificates. Someone in the room will say, hey, we're a college. We're not a vocational school. Right. So they'll say that in, my, you know, I'll take a deep breath. And I think that horse has left the barn because mm-hmm. You can't have someone leave college with $30,000 in debt, and there's no debate as to that. I mean, that, that is a, an average that is several sources can tell you. You know, we just broke the 30 k mark. Yeah, and it takes, that. what, on average close to 20 years to pay down that, that Yeah, debt. so if that's the case, you need, and there is a moral obligation 
to provide that student with the means to pay the debt. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't have them leaving school and not be prepared to have a viable career. You just can't. And so there's and that so, like growing kind of clarity internally with some at our institutions that the value proposition doesn't add up. But then you see it with parents. Like yeah. they look at the the expenses for various types of colleges, pro- public, private, and you know I know parents of means that are saying this just doesn't make sense. The amount of debt my my child will have to take on, and how long it will it will saddle them. Yeah, is there a different path? A new angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hey, this is Coulter Nuanas from ESPN Missoula, and you're listening to A New Angle. Hey, folks, exciting news for you. A New Angle will be airing a special retrospective episode on Montana Public Radio this Sunday, January 5th from 4 to 5 p.m. Tell all your friends about it and tune in. And there are. There are different paths emerging. And the thing is, you're having a podcast. I do the research. You pay attention. So we're two individuals that are actively looking at these evolutions but i think so many of our colleagues are they have their blinders on you know they don't see these coding academies emerging they don't see institutions like western governors you know and their success they've had over the past decade and it really is an amazing exercise in change management. You have all of these brilliant people in different fields. And, you know, the funny thing is it, it could be any field. It could be history. Yeah. It could be gender studies. It could be business. And if you think about any of these scholars, they look at the evolution and disruption within their sphere. So history, it could be, you know, looking at how communism emerged in Europe. Gender studies could be about the suffrage movement. At the core, they're all about change. And so how can you study these instances of change and not understand that you are literally about to be part of one? And that's what frustrates me. Because the linear four-year bachelor degree model just doesn't work anymore. You know, what you should have is you should have a student come in, you know, learn something for a year, go to Europe, take a gap year, go work, you know, on houses for, you know, Habitat for Humanity, then maybe come back. And then we need to develop that type of living curriculum and it was in the new york times two weeks ago justin i can send you the link and for any of your listeners it was a wonderful article on the emerging notion of the 60-year curriculum right and we need to get there and if you the way we're going to get there there's going to be a, a midpoint compromise and that midpoint compromise is going to be all right fine everyone gets a bachelor's but after that there are no more structured monolithic degrees it, there's just they don't serve anyone well um you know the problem is not and the other thing is so the faculty i think are problematic because they're so wedded and in, in love with the way they've delivered things but the administration too it just a, a lot of folks probably don't understand this if you're an administrator of a college you want to build a building you will go out to you know uh, a financial institution and you'll get a bond for that mm-hmm. and to service that bond you'll basically say 
our expectation is we're going to grow at 2%. We're going to retain 90% of our students. They're going to graduate in five years, and the net present value of that financial stream is X. Will you give us a bond for our new building? Yes. So these institutions are wedded to that four-year bachelor degree. Mm -hmm. They couldn't get off of it if they wanted to. Um, so as much as it makes sense to you and I, there is the mental impediment to change, but there is literally the economic fiscal component that is going to cause a lot of institutions, as my grandmother used to call it, my Italian grandmother, agita, you know, that chest pain. They right, just, right. They can't do it. And so, so the structure of the bachelor will certainly be the basis for lifelong learning but that has to be the basis for lifelong learning for 60 years you know not bachelor masters it has to be bachelors and then just a diverse universe of skills and credentials that people can walk in and out of uh at any point in their careers depending on their station in life um and so and even the, you're, yeah go ahead I'm sorry, that, as you're laying that out what people might hear is yeah. sort of a threat to the traditional liberal arts form of education, and what, yeah. what I, I don't see it necessarily that way. I, I I see the the landscape that you're painting, and you used this phrase before, and we use it a lot here at the University of Montana. Is we need to create lifelong learners. Well, yeah, you know, to me that 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 rich form of traditional liberal arts education is the basis on which. A lifetime of creativity and curiosity and adaptability and flexibility can be built, but it sounded like you're you're not arguing against that. You're arguing it's sort of a yes and. Is that right? I am. I would never. You know, the best, and it, it is relevant to the point I'm about to make. I'm 49 years old, mm -hmm. and when I went to UMass Amherst at 18, I was the first kid in my family to go to college. And I was a blank slate. I came from a primarily white working class area of the state, um, maybe had met one or two African-American folks. I don't know, you know, at the point in time, you know, I, I certainly had folks that didn't look like me. But for the most part, I came from a pretty homogeneous background um, relative to gender, excuse me, sexuality, uh, ethnicity, sure. a lot of the things that, you know, I think we now know are incredibly important to an education. And the most important courses I took were related to those things. Um, I remember taking a course in the history of Islam, and it, it opened my eyes to what that meant and what, you know, that a, that a fourth of the world didn't go to Catholic school like me or yeah, church exactly. on Sundays. And, you know, that's invaluable. And I remember taking a class on dystopian futures and reading Animal Farm and We and, you know, um, 1984 and Brave New World. And these are my favorite courses weren't accounting and marketing. They were courses that you would qualify as out of the liberal arts and humanities. And those courses, I think, become more important, to your point, as you progress as an individual because the stakes get higher. Right. You know, as you go through your career, you know, what are the ethical choices you have to make? You know, how do you understand other people's cultural backgrounds? And that is actually a frustration for me because the folks in the liberal arts, they're just so wedded in 
the way they've done things. I, I, for whatever reason, they don't see this as an opportunity and they won't restructure accordingly. When you tell someone, hey, you know, maybe we need to replace a course um, that's always been in the humanities with a new course around AI and philosophy. They just won't hear it. Hmm. And so I, I think in, you see this. Um, and I guess the, I, I don't want to necessarily yeah. single out humanities professors yeah. as being inflexible. I mean, we have yeah. inflexibility across domains <laughs> here. And I see it in yeah. myself, too. I see resistance to change. So I, I think... Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's a fair point, but I don't think it's yeah. unique to, to liberal arts professors. It isn't, but I would tell you the problem is, Justin, when you know they continue this whole thing around academic prioritization, which is the buzzword these days, yep. budget cuts, guess what? You and I are not going to have to you know, make tough choices. They're not. You know, I'll have full classes to the day I'm closing up my office. That cannot be said about the humanities. It just can't. And they know that. And so it's time for them to, you know, look at the value. Um, and some people, the AA and, AA and U, I forget the organization, the American Association of the Humanities and Little Lots, they just did a huge research. It was uh, effort. It was in Harvard. The president came out basically talking about the role of the humanities in the future of work. And it was around critical thinking. It was around, you know, cultural sensitivity, and cultural understanding and all those types of things. That's good news because I don't think we want to be just churning out, you know, kids that know how to do accounting or how to design a survey or how to efficiently design a factory. There has to be a sense, and I make this case in the piece that I was writing for that economic journal, there has to be a sense of, you know, humanity in these questions. Right. And I was on a panel two weeks ago with um, – uh, Thomas Koken, he is a professor at MIT, and I okay. want to credit him appropriately because it was his quote in this panel as a toss-off, but I've been using it ever since. It's this whole notion of how do we bring the wisdom to the machines? And I, I, I can't stress that enough for your listeners. You know, There are going to be some really big questions. And the quote that I will often use is that, you know, we, and I used it on in our meeting a few weeks back, Justin, we overestimate the short-term impact of technology and we underestimate the long-term impact of technology. Mm -hmm. I am in Boston, see the AI stuff. It's struggling to get out of the gate, but let me tell you something, in five to 10 years, AI is going to affect the way we live in so many facets and we need people that can ask the big questions you know should we be doing this who is this going to affect and that is going to have to come from people that are well versed in liberal arts and humanities and so that it's critical it's absolutely critical that they have a seat at the table and so how does i mean in your ideal view what is what is the value form of some of those traditional liberal arts sorts of topics and experiences look like I think they have to start tying and getting more integrated into these future of work technologies. You heard me um, reference, you know, AI and philosophy. Uh, Thomas Davenport in the MIT Sloan Management Review last week, last week, excuse me, last year, had an article about this AI ethicist and the role of an AI ethicist hmm. and that this should be a role in organizations as you adopt AI to basically say, all right, Let's you know make sure there's pause buttons along the way. 
but that person would draw from philosophy, from ethics. You know, th- that is, I think, how we pull in the liberal arts and we pull in the humanities. You know, questions around privacy and security, uh, the chronicle data, you know, the chronicle of higher education, which is, you know, as you know, supposedly the trade rag for higher ed. They had an article earlier this week, you know, data is going to touch every discipline. Right. You know, so how, what does that mean for the humanities? I don't know, but they need to be asking these questions internally. I guess let's bring it maybe closer to home as far as, you know, your lane and my lane as as educators in a business school. I mean, I think of myself in marketing and a lot of the demands for our students are like, hey, can you come in and run targeted Facebook advertising campaigns on day one? Can you come in and do search optimization for our website? Can you come in and do these sorts of specific things? And it occurs to me as 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 we're kind of talking about that, that those are in the category of, you know, maybe those disrupted jobs because they're repetitive tasks. The platforms change and you got to learn, you got to be adaptable a little bit. But if you're repeating the same thing, that is largely algorithm driven. It seems like something that an AI could displace pretty darn quickly. Yeah, no. Um, You know, I often talk to people about, you know, I affectionately, I kind of make it like a fairy tale or I call it the tale of the young engineer and the python, you know, and it's a play on words because what I speak of is, you know, the, uh, the program Python and a young woman engineer, and it illustrates the problems with skill-based training in higher ed. If you have a young woman who's coming in and getting her bachelor's in computer science, the average time it takes to get a bachelor's these days is about five years. In five years, and I could send you the citation, At the time she graduates, they anticipate that AI will be writing on its own, unsupervised, but with direction, fully functional Python programs. Wow. And that would have been the entry level job for that young woman. So not only will she be competing with, you know, someone who graduated from Boston College, Boston University, Worcester Polytech, University of Montana, Mm -hmm. University of Chicago. Right. She'll also be competing with an AI bot that, given minimal guidance, could write a Python program, you know, to um, design a 3D mold um, for printing on the Internet. I don't know, but they, you know, it's, it's not relevant. Um, right. She can't compete. Right. She can't compete. And so you to your point around, you know, web page optimization and those types of jobs, you know, that's where the rub comes in. Uh, you know, similarly with, you know, accounting jobs and finance, um, there was a report that came out. And again, I can send you any of these things. Um, last year, State Street, which is one of the primary employers here in the Boston area, laid off 1,500 people. These are 1,500 people um, that were mid-career with masters in finance, uh, had been with the company for years, and they were being displaced because they were bringing AI to replace their uh, portfolio analysis skills. Sure, yeah, portfolio analysts, portfolio managers. Oh, just absolutely. Being and you know, and similarly, there was a report that came out uh, about two weeks ago that said in um, 
it was in Bloomberg that in the next decade in the banking center, there would be about 250,000, a quarter of a million people that would lose their jobs outright because of AI. You know, so as we get into the future of work, you know, those numbers that I gave you earlier relative to Forrester and Oxford and McKinsey, as we get closer, like anything, like a hurricane, you know, the closer you get to the event, those forecasts are going to materialize and be more accurate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's starting to happen. So the question for you, Justin, and the question for me and anyone who's in what you would call a professional school, what do we do? I mean, you know, as a kid with a, we have a master's in finance, you know, they invest two years, they get it and they weigh, you know, get $50,000. Are they wasting their money? And I don't know the answer to that question right now, but I think it's worth asking. Yeah. Well, gosh, I mean, that's sort of a, I don't know the answers and that's the whole yeah. point. Like that's, that there's just so much uncertainty yeah. in the system and, and it, it begs the question, you know, if you have this level of uncertainty looking at the future, yeah, and you have these institutions that um, are kind of built by design to not move quickly and to and to rely on structure and process. I mean, how do you redesign a university to deal with this uncertain future? Like, if you could wave your magic wand and, and either start a new institution. I don't know if a place like Minerva is a model you're, you're yeah, right. enamored with yeah, or something like that. But like, if you if you were to wave your magic wand and, and start fresh and build a new institution, what would it look like? Uh, I, I I do think. I mean, I have thought about this, and I've thought about it from the other side of the coin. And I I will basically say that anyone's it's a great question, Justin, because you're basically calling me to the carpet. I will say to people, listen, anyone who is starting a university today would not design it the way it looks like right now. No one would. Right. Um, But then the the follow up and it's surprising. Hopefully people listen to this and then they'll be able to, you know, test me. Then what would it look like? And for me, it it does get down to the whole issue i think around you know cognitive skills i think system level thinking skills so that people can understand you know the integration of systems and because i talked to my classes and you commented on if you look at like autonomous vehicles and um you know retail shopping and you look at uh the internet of things and an ability to understand the way those systems interplay is going to be critical, just critical. Um, so I think if you were redesigning, there would be an aspect of the humanities that gives everyone a strong sense of you know who we are, where we've come from, and where we're going. I think there'd be some skills in professional aspect. Um, that would allow for those students to have some careers out of the gate, but it would not be 120 credits in accounting, knowing full well that, you know, that's not probably, you know, like the the, the, the tale of the woman in Python, you're going to have to shift and you're probably yeah. going to have to shift a lot quicker than you think. Skills, inevitably, um, they have a shelf life. And I think that's an important thing to note as well. And then I think there's those thinking skills. And then finally, and I see it all the time, I don't know what it's like out at Montana, or I know it's not unique to Lowell, just reading and writing, you know, the level of reading and writing, and I don't know to the degree it's texting or the internet. It's, it's not good. I think there yeah. is some real issues there. So I mean, I would, there'd be like the humanities, some skill stuff, 
some thinking stuff and then some basic stuff, you know, you know, basic reading, writing, arithmetic. And how would and you, I would, how would you design and I would have, it? Go ahead. And I would have it more integrated. I really would. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I say, so, when you're talking about integration, how would you design a faculty? You know, we talked a little bit about tenure before we started recording, but how would you yeah. sort of balance scholarly active faculty, practitioners, um, tenure, non-tenure? What, what's your view on that? The problem there is is tenure. I mean, yeah. the, that is the problem, right? I mean, we are so siloed. We research in specialized areas. We interact with scholars across the academy in specialized areas. We publish in specialized journals. We teach one-off three-credit courses. That is one of the biggest challenges. And the times that I am able to work with scholars in other disciplines, I was attached with the National Park Service grant a decade ago mm-hmm. with uh, a professor on South Campus, which is like the humanities for us. And I will tell you, I was 10 times more effective than if I had just been with another business professor. Really? Because you look at things differently, yeah, you think yeah. about things differently. But Justin, I don't know the answer to that question. I really don't. And I've yet to see models for that. Um, The Chronicle of Higher Education this week put a big article out about cluster hiring and how you, for those of you not familiar with cluster hiring, you look at what the competencies are at university. So maybe it's nanotechnology. And then you hire across the university in different disciplines to build that competency in nano. So maybe in the humanities, they would look at the ethics of nano. In the sciences, it would be um, how to develop nano stuff, uh, engineering, how to structure them. Uh, in business, it would be the, how to study the cluster of nanotechnology in Boston. And so that cluster hiring, it sounds great in theory, but you look at the tenure clock, five, six years, and these young academics are still evaluated on the impact in their field. Right, very and narrow. these fields, by default, are not cross or interdisciplinary. They're just not. And it's tough for someone who just invested four, five, six years to get a PhD to basically then tell them, well, you need to play nice across all these disciplines to get tenure. I mean, that's a that's a tough ask. It really is. So I do not have an answer for that question. But if I was building it, you know, and I've thought about it, and you're starting to see these places emerge, you would have that type of curriculum that looked at, you know, just general thinking, some basic skills, some technical skills, and then a humanities component. And you'd throw it out and say, you know, do you want to work across all four and hopefully you'd draw people from, you know, history, you'd draw people from science, you'd draw people from education um, that wanted to look at new innovative credentialing models. Uh, that's I, That would be the hope. Uh, it's a pie in the sky at this point in time. It just is. Well, yeah, but as you're laying it out there, I mean, just thinking about, I'm sitting here looking at your, your Sloan article and yeah. universities have the core skill set. Yeah. Right. That this moment in our society needs it needs more than ever in some ways. Yet we just sort of like to, to bridge to the practical demands of of the moment. It just seems really, really challenging. Yeah. No. I, I I think so. You know. And then the other thing I think that's happening in the academy that's bothersome to me, and I don't know 
and, and, it, and it happens across the academy. The, the, to, I, in the article that I just wrote, someone said, well, can you do a better job of illustrating, you know, the vocational, as I mentioned before, versus the humanities? I don't know why colleges and universities, colleges within universities are being pitted against each right, other. Right. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like for us, these young adults, they go in, they do their gen eds in the humanities and liberal arts, then they leave them, then they come to us. And there are just these paths, these distinct points, and there's just no integration across. And for me, that's amazingly frustrating because I know my scholars in the humanities are you know wonderful uh intelligent thinkers that are are invested in these students and similarly here with the business school but somehow you know and the chronicle draws me up a wall the business school these days is the whipping boy whipping girl and just the trade schools are bad they're just out there to get skills and that's just not the case folks and it's certainly not the case with our students, you know, our students, you can't invite first generation kids to come to colleges and universities and then not give them an ability to, to again, prosper earlier in the careers because it's a different discussion when they get home. You know, that young woman or man, when they ask their father or mother to help them with school, the father or mother are doing it because they hope they're going to have a better lot in life. So when you say to that first generation kid, you know, what are you majoring in? And they say, oh, I'm majoring in critical dance theory. That just isn't a conversation that's going to go well in those types of households. They want to hear that they're majoring in engineering, um, you know, work, being able to work in a lab, being able to be an accountant or, you know, and so I don't know if I'm making sense, but right. it, it, it's, I think that contributes too to this discord across colleges that I know happens here at Lowell. And I know happens across every university across the way. The people in the humanities look down at the trade schools, the professional schools as being dirty. Yep. And, you know, and then we look at the people in the humanities as teaching skills that aren't central. Sure, irrelevant know. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right? it's, it's just such an unhealthy narrative. And I don't know, we're doing ourselves no favors whatsoever. Well, then when you uh, think I about, yeah. I mean, you mentioned the bond structure of a university yeah. kind of dictating how administration conceptualizes the product. I mean, here we have a similar structural constraints, particularly at enrollment-driven universities where funding relies on enrollment. You know, yeah. How do you do that? Well, you reward units for – well, you could reward units for student credit hours generating, and then that, that pits units against each other. And it, it is yeah. becomes a very sort of zero-sum game, yeah. and that's, that's really detrimental to collaboration. Super detrimental. Yeah. Super. Yeah. Okay. Well, Scott, I think I feel like I'm coming up against the limits of your time here. I could. Yeah. This could be a three-hour podcast, and I would love <laughs> every minute of it. What can we? Um, I want to close with something yeah. positive. Like, what should students, listeners, people working right now, parents, whoever, what can they be excited about in this future that we're talking about? So yeah. So let me. I think universities, university leaders, and faculty. They should be thrilled. I mean, they should see this as an opportunity. Right. If going back to that statistic that 85% of the jobs a decade from now haven't been created, to your point, we play a role in shaping those jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, we have all, 
we have everything that is needed. We have brilliant faculty that study these types of things. So I think this is not a period of crisis for universities. It should be a period of opportunity. I think a few tweaks to the bachelor, uh, incorporating some credentialing around certificates and competency-based models, and I think we're going to be fine. Um, you know, I think for the general folks out there, I think every time I see a, you know, there was one, um, there was a, a company that went out of business out in Palo Alto, a, a, a robot company, and I laughed because what you're seeing is that um oh carbon robotics that's the name okay. of it. carbon robotics is shutting down and they're out, they were like one of the darlings of this robot renaissance sure uh we had one here in boston called rethink that went out of business a while back this change isn't going to happen overnight i do think a decade from now justin you and i are looking at a dramatically different work uh landscape but change happens slowly it happens unpredictably so i would look at models like i offered with beth humbird you know how are these technologies going to affect the way i work in my job um every job is going to be changed you know radiology is going to be changed surgery is going to be changed laying bricks is going to be changed uh, house painting is going to be changed just ask that question and go out and type house painting and robots and you'll see what's on the horizon uh radiology and robots uh, you know radiology and ai for example so that's the advice i would offer to the individual is just getting a sense of how the change is going to happen. Um, and the when, I don't think we're at a point. It's not going to be a light switch. It's not going to happen overnight. And they have more time to respond than most people think. Mm -hmm. um, and then for students, I think just knowing that a bachelor degree is one step in what will be. Uh, there is, I got my bachelor's, then my master's, then my doctorate. I'm sure you're very similar in that regard. They're going to get a bachelor's and then they're going to get about, 20 different credentials across a wide array of you know disciplines and thinking and, and just be flexible you know yeah. be very very flexible maybe so, they'll buy a subscription imagine that i think that's a neat way of looking at it yeah you're probably going to see that happen i think you'll have someone like a in it the thing that's bothersome around that is i think you'll see an mit or boston university sure these top tier top 50 schools will come out and say, all right, Scott, Justin, uh, we'll give you a subscription model for education, $129 a month for five years. And you can take any course online in our catalog. Yeah. I mean, but there again, there's the change associated with you and I delivering that. And there's that fiscal barrier associated with how schools typically their funding mechanisms mm -hmm. so but that's going to happen and it's going to happen out of those schools because they have larger it's huge endowments yeah. endowments and cushions and pillows that can support that type of innovation um, you're also the other thing you're going to see i think that is you're going to start to see a lot more private training um you know the amazon yeah um, yeah academies of the world i don't think those are good for society at all um you know, there was an article I saw about Amazon Web Services, which is, again, a platform technology. Right. And we're language. doing some work with Amazon Web Services. Yeah. yeah. Um, it locks in the individual. Um, 
I think the research shows that it doesn't increase their job prospect. It diminishes them when they try to go cross-platform. They struggle. So I don't think we want the rise of private corporate universities. I do not. I think that'll be a disaster. Well, we've seen on a on a different scale how what's that done to the stu- what that's done to the student debt situation. It's not yeah. good. Uh, and then the one thing we haven't talked about, and you know, I'm probably not the person to talk about, is the, the whole China equation. Mm. You know, is yeah. higher ed's relationship with China is incredibly dysfunctional, incredibly dysfunctional, and that gravy train is over. You know, for a lot of reasons. I think one. The Chinese PhDs that we've seen come here over the past 10 years, they are now returning home and building research universities there. Mm-hmm. So the undergrads don't have to leave. I think the Chinese students are going to other locales in either Europe or Canada or Australia. Um, and I think there's a deteriorating relationship with China, given the political environment. And, you know, UMass Lowell had a significant Chinese population and we're suffering due to that um so yeah i think that further compounds a lot of you know what we're talking about well that was my attempt to kind of end on a cheerful note but um (laughs) but uh there is i think there's a lot to be bullish about one is you know uncertainty like you said scott sort of creates opportunity and we scratched the surface of a lot of topics here i would love to maybe have you back when that um when that paper you reference comes out or something and just keep the, the dialogue going. Cause yeah, if this tends to be a podcast, that's you know, something that your listeners enjoy and you find to be a value. I love having these conversations. I really do. And I'll be out in Montana next spring. So. Super. So hopefully we'll do it in person. Scott, thanks so much yeah. for joining us and uh, happy trails. Thank you, Justin. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Hopefully you learned something from Scott, something you'll be motivated to think about deeply. All right, coming up next week, we have a true renaissance man, best-selling author, international diplomat, and now corporate executive Michael Punk. Stay tuned for that one next week. Oh, and Happy New Year. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum and interns Aspen Runkel and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally... If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at a new angle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag a new angle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.